your Bible this evening to Psalm 15, Psalm 15, as we're continuing our series through the book of Psalms during the summer, Psalm 15, Psalm of David, and we'll be looking at Psalm 15 tonight under the, uh, the title, Who Lives There? Psalm 15, let's give our attention to God's word this evening. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fears the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. If you've been uh, out to Holland State Park in the last year or two, you may have noticed that uh, there's a new home that's been built just on the south side of the channel, up in the dunes, overlooking the lake and uh, the big red lighthouse. It's a magnificent looking stone structure with uh, multiple fireplaces and terraces uh, that look out over the lake, beautiful big windows. It's a mansion in the uh, truest sense of the word. Uh, the first question that people tend to ask when they see uh, that, uh, that home is, who lives there? Who lives there? I think it's an interesting response um, because you, there's a lot of questions you could ask. You could ask how many bedrooms and baths are there. It's, well, there's four bedrooms and 11 bathrooms, which suggests to me that they'd love to have you over, but they don't want you to spend the night. <laughs> it has its own theater. It has its own uh, underground parking garage, as many of you do as well. But the, um, the real question people want to know is who lives there? Well, David and Carol Van Andel live there. That's their little cottage by the lake, and um, that's their home. Now, why do we want to know who lives there? I think it, it helps us to imagine what it would be like. I don't know about you, but when I see that home, I can't help but imagine what it must be like to wake up in the morning and take your coffee and go out on the terrace overlooking the lake with the early morning mist rising and the waves gently splashing, the, the seagulls calling. I can imagine what it must be like to walk through those majestic halls and, and, and over gorgeous floors and recline in luxurious furniture and look out the majestic windows with all that wonderful light pouring in and I easily think to myself, I could live there. I could live like that. I would love to live like that. But of course, I can't live there, can I? Now, I know Dave somewhat. We're about the same age. Um, I uh, used to deliver oil to his gas station, and so we would strike up conversations. Dave and his wife even visited Harvest a time or two when they were looking for a church. Um, don't know if you remember me, but, but what if I just walked up to Dave and said, listen, uh, we've known each other for a long time, and this is a big, beautiful home, and uh, we, we would just like to move in. 
I think David would say, well, I don't think I remember you, but uh, I know this for sure. Um, there's the, the road, and you can hit it as quickly as possible, and here's a man to, escort, uh, to help you out. See, because you, there are requirements, aren't there? You just can't go up to a house like that and invite yourself in. There are requirements if you're going to live in a place like that, and the requirements to live in a place like that is you either have to have a vast amount of money or you need to be intimately related to the owner, and that's the only way it's going to happen. And so no matter how you or I might wish differently, we're not going to live there in that home. It's just not possible. We don't meet the necessary requirements. Well, tonight in Psalm 15, David uh, faces a similar issue. Who can live in God's mansion? Who can live in God's holy abode? Who can live in Mount Zion, God's holy city? Who can live with God? So tonight we're going to look first then at the request. And then secondly, the requirement. The request and then the requirement. The question that David asks is not just a um, sort of a random thought, but it, it has a context. It has a an historical background to it. When David speaks of God's tent, his God's tabernacle, it's the same word, he's talking about where God lives, God's home, his dwelling place, his, his mansion. And he asks the question, not idly, but because he experiences a deep longing to live in God's house. He senses that he was made to live in God's house, to sojourn with God, to to tabernacle with God. And of course he was. Our story, the story of mankind, begins in such a palatial setting. It begins with our first parents, Adam and Eve, living in God's mansion there in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was, first of all, a tabernacle. It was was God's address on earth. It's where God lived, and, and God invited Adam and Eve to live there with him, to share the palatial mansion of God's abode on earth with him. And there they experienced what they were made for. They they lived in the light of the presence of God. They walked in the beauty of holiness. They 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 experienced every day just the glory and magnificence of living with God in unbroken intimate fellowship in God's beautiful pristine world. It was it was what they were made for. But then they sinned. And when they rebelled against God and made an alliance with the devil, they, they were unfit to dwell with God. They, in fact, it was impossible for them to dwell with God. And what God did in response to their sin is he escorted them off the premises. He cast them out of the garden, Genesis 3, 24. And he placed their cherubim at the gate that, uh, of the garden on the east uh, end of the garden. The cherubim with a flaming sword was placed there to bar entrance back in. They were removed from the garden. And ever since that fateful day, men and women have lived in this world, still good in many ways, but sensing that we're not really at home. We were made for more. We sense that we're on the outside looking in, that there, there must be something more. And when we see a beautiful home like the Venandal home, we experience a, a bit of a heartache, a longing for Eden. C.S. Lewis pointed to this this universal longing of of mankind as an evidence that we must have been made for mansions. We must have been created for glory, and of course we have. We've been made to dwell with God, but we can't. 
We can't. There are requirements that we can't meet. And there's no price you can pay for it. There's, um, there's no moral effort that will, that will provide it. You and I enter this world, we're stained with sin, and so we have this, this dilemma of a deep longing for the glory of God and to be in the, in the presence of God, to live in the mansion of God and the knowledge that we have no possible way of getting past the cherubim. We're unqualified to enter in. David has just stated that fact, if you remember, in Psalm 14, which we did last time. Psalm 14, uh, David acknowledges there's no one who does good, not even one. There's nobody in, the, in the, all of humanity, save Jesus, there's no one who uh, fulfills the requirements. We've all turned away. We've all gone our own way. And so here's the dilemma. Here's the question. Lord, who can live where you live? What's the way in? How do we get back into the thing that we were made for? How do we get back into the presence of God? Is it possible? Could there be a way that, that we could gain what we long for? To dwell in the beauty of, home, of, of God's palace, God's home. Who shall dwell in the tent of God? And then David, secondly, gives the requirement. Uh, the answer is the person who is holy, holy as the Lord is holy. And, and David recounts in just very brief form some of the characteristics of that holiness. Notice in this psalm, the holiness that David speaks of is relational holiness. Holiness is almost, it's always relational. In relationship with God, in relationship with other people. Uh, we, we often think of a holy person as some, maybe a monk who's off on his own just doing religious things. Uh, well, that's the, the, the holiness of religious duty is the holiness of the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Jesus referred to them as whitewashed tombs. They're clean on the outside. They're dead inside. Uh, the holiness that God delights in is vibrant. It's rich. It's relational. It cares not just for principles, but for people. And so what we have here is a, is a, it's a description of a beautiful person. There's, a, there's beauty here. Someone who loves the Lord, someone who delights in truth, who speaks the truth. His, his mouth is, is a, a, a fountain of blessing. He cares about people. If you met this person, you would admire him. You'd want to be like him. He would not be cold and formal and religious. He'd be warm and You'd want to spend time with him. He loves the Lord. He loves what's true. He cares about people. And so let's delight in this person. Verse 2, he walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. In relationship to God's commands, God's law, he lives blamelessly. doesn't mean he's perfect. It's not perfection, but there, his, his, his bent is towards the commands of God. He loves God's commands. He loves what God is like. And he loves the life that mirrors the character of God. And so if you, if you would look at his life in comparison and compare it with the, with the will and the character of God, you'd see this close resemblance. He fears the Lord. He desires to please God. He, he's, he's, he hates sin for that reason. Loves to obey because he fears his God. He loves to please him. And because, you see, he has this concern for God, he does what is right. His righteous, righteous actions flow from a true, pure heart. He speaks truth from the truth within him. 
And then in verse 3, the same person described negatively, he does not slander with his tongue. One of the most common and most devastating sins uh, among men. He doesn't speak evil regarding other people. Some translators use the word, he, uh, he doesn't backbite. Right? It's talking about a person who, a backbiter, a slanderer, someone who notices the affairs of other people, pays attention to what they do and what they say, and then uh, speaks uh, to other people about it, gives an injurious report. It's a wicked, wicked thing to do. I've been reading through uh, the Proverbs and was just struck again how often in, in Proverbs it talks about the sin of the, of the mouth and how God hates the sins of the mouth. Let me give you just a few. Proverbs 10, verse 11 and 12. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Hatred stirs up strife. Love covers all offenses. With his, with his mouth, the godless man would destroy his neighbor. But by knowledge, the righteous are delivered. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. But he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. As, as, the, as Solomon looks around the world and notices the way men deal with other men, he sees this common theme of a slandering mouth. This man, the holy man, the godly man, he does not do evil to his neighbor, doesn't take up a reproach with a friend. In other words, not only does he not speak uh, bad reports, he doesn't receive bad reports. Do we realize that it is just as sinful to receive gossip and slander as it is to speak it? I came across uh, this from Charles Simeon. He was an old um, Puritan pastor. And he says, the longer I live the more I feel the importance of adhering to the following rules. And here's five rules when it comes uh, to this issue. To hear as little as possible the uh, gossip about others. So if there's people gossiping, he's just not going to go there. To hear as little as possible. Secondly, to believe nothing of such gossip unless the facts force me to do so. Three, to never drink in the spirit of the one who circulates an ill report. Because that's, you see, when the person is circulating ill report, that's what they want. They want you to join in that spirit of condemnation, that spirit of, of superiority and self-righteousness or feigned concern. Four, always to moderate as best I can the unkindness which gospel renders. So you go to the defense of the person that's being gossiped about. And five, always to believe that if the other side were heard, a very different account would be given of the matter. And so that was Simeon's rules as he, as he lived in this world. Uh, you know, the basic rule for all of us is whether we are speaking or receiving, when someone is talking about someone else, is it true, is it necessary, and is it kind? Great basic rules. Is it true? Is it necessary? Is it kind? Does it build up? Does it bless? Well, this, this godly man tries to use his mouth in a way that blesses. Because, you see, he hates what is evil, and he delights in what is good. Verse 4, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. We live in a culture, we're so used to it, we live in a culture that honors vileness, that honors vile people, people who do and say and, uh, and, and delight in vile things. And the idea of vile is something that's morally corrupt, it's, it's morally rotten. 
It's unfit for consumption. And so the the godly person, not because he's a prude, not because he's self-righteous, but a godly person because he loves God, because he delights in what's good and beautiful and true and pure, he hates vileness. If you enjoy good fruit, you hate rotten fruit. If you love good meat, you hate spoiled meat. Well, he loves good things. And so he, he, he honors those who fear the Lord. When he sees someone who, who fears God, his heart just goes out to that man, that woman. Because it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a joining of hearts. They share the same passion. His delight for those who fear the Lord comes because he fears the Lord and so he practices his principles in the fear of God even to his own hurt he swears to his own hurt and does not change if he makes a promise he keeps the promise even if it if it damages his own well-being or financial status and he doesn't change it's very tempting to change your principles when you find that it's going to be inconvenient or hard And finally, this person, verse 5, does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. There's a huge discussion in Reformed, well, uh, in Christian circles about the use of interest. I think the point here is simply that he cares about people in need. He doesn't use his wealth to extort people. The, the, the wealthy can do this. They'll lend a loan and maybe have a clause in there that, that is um, he's just taking advantage of people. Uh, or extorts them with, with exorbitant interest rates. Uh, well, the, the man doesn't go near that. This godly man doesn't accept bribes against innocent people. He's not for sale, ever. He cares about the poor. He's committed to justice no matter what. And the conclusion then is, he who does these things shall never be moved. He will not be removed from Mount Zion. He gets to live in the house of God. He'll never be cast out. So what are we to make of Psalm 15? Do you feel encouraged? Excited? Going to go out and make this happen? No, I don't think that's how most of us feel. We hope these things are true of us. We want these things to be true of us. If you're a child of God, you want to be godly. You want to be holy. You hope you're making some progress in these things by the grace of God, but but there's no one this evening that would, would stand and say, uh, I think he's talking about me. This, my friends say this about me all the time. Right? This is what I look like. We wouldn't say that. But you see, if these are the, the requirements for dwelling in God's house, if, if this is the standard that must be met in order for us to be allowed to go back home, for us to be allowed to dwell with God, well, then we just have to admit there really isn't hope for us. We're, we're, we're just not good enough. We're not good enough. And there's no way that we can make ourselves good enough. And so this, this psalm has two lessons, really. I'm not going to deal with both of them, but it, there's an application here in terms of justification and an application in terms of sanctification. Uh, we're going to run into this again when we get to Psalm 24, a very similar psalm, and uh, I hope to deal with this, the, the, appli- the uh, sanctification application then. Uh, tonight, because we're coming to the Lord's Supper, I want to focus on the application of justification. Because the psalm is teaching us the need for a Savior. David has just said, no one does good, not even one. No one seeks after God. All have turned astray. And then here he stands and, 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 and 
ask this universal question. Who can go home? Who can be with God? Who can experience the glory and the goodness and the beauty of God's truth and his, his being? Well, the person who does these things, well, we, we're not that person. You see, remember, there are two ways into the Venandal Mansion, aren't there? One is, is if you can afford such a place yourself, you have, you have the financial resources to make that happen. But the second way would be if you were in an intimate relationship with someone who belonged to the family. Maybe you, you were best friends with the, the son of David Venandel. Then you could go, you could probably even do sleepovers. You would be allowed in. You could eat with the family. If you married into the Venandel family, well, of course, then you become part of the family. You need to be intimately related to someone who belongs. And you see, that's the beauty of God sending us Jesus. Because Jesus becomes like us, a second Adam who comes to undo the failure of the first. Someone who is able to help us, able to bring us into the Father's house. And this psalm is a wonderful description of our Savior. Jesus did all of these things. We should see here the beauty of Jesus who walked blamelessly according to the law. You know there were men who were watching him like a hawk, waiting for him to misstep, but he always and only did what was right, and he did it because he loved his father. He always spoke truth in his heart, never slandered, never gossiped, didn't receive those things either. He never did evil to his neighbor. In fact, he loved his enemies. Swore even to his own hurt. He made a promise to the Father before the foundation of the world that he would rescue all the Father would give to him at the cost of his own life. We call that the covenant of redemption. And when the true weight of that sacrifice was known to him, when the awful terror of that price was evident to him in the Garden of Gethsemane, our Jesus wept and he, uh, he sweat drops of blood. He laid prostrate on the ground, asking, Father, is there another way? But he did not retract his vow. He didn't retract his vow. He didn't change course. He offered his body. He offered his blood for you, for me, bore the wrath that you deserved, that I deserved. Jesus did that. He became the, the atoning sacrifice for our sin. And what happened in that? What happened in that is that the gospel now invites sinners, people like you and people like me. It invites us to come and enter into the house of God through the imputed righteousness of Jesus, which is given as a free gift to all those who confess their sins and believe in him. If you confess the truth of your inability and your sin, if you turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, the Bible promises that the doors of God's house is open to you. The cherubim with his flaming sword steps aside and holds the door free. You see, do you remember what happened when Jesus died? The veil of the temple was torn into, the veil that, that kept people from the Holy of Holies. Do you remember what was on the veil? The cherubim. Right? They were embroidered. The, the cherubim that stood guard at the gate of Eden, they were embroidered onto that veil to just remind people, you're not allowed in here. And that veil was torn in two because the gospel says, you're welcome. Come home. The gospel word is access. Jesus has provided access, a way for you to come 
home. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You've been invited in, in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 3.12, in Jesus Christ we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Hebrews chapter 12, 22. You have come to Mount Zion. You've come to God's holy city. You've come to his holy abode. And you are invited in, in Jesus Christ. You see, friends, we, we're able to get in. We're able to experience again all the blessings of God all as a free gift. We, we, we had no ch chance of entering ourselves, but someone came and someone put his arms around us and was willing to claim us. And if we go in him and with him, now the doors are thrown open. We have absolute confidence that we have, we have access into God's mansion. We get to experience what David longed for. And so friends, I would, if you are Christian type tonight, relish your privilege Relish your privilege. You know, you, it's easy to imagine what it must be like to be able to get up in the morning and take your cup of coffee. Maybe the servant brings it to you. I don't know how that works. And you go out and you sit out on the veranda and you overlook the sea or the lake, whatever it might be. I can almost taste what that would be like. Well, that is, that is nothing compared to what it means to be a Christian. You get to get up every morning and take your cup of coffee as God's free gift to you, and you can go sit in whatever chair you like, and you have communion with God. His mercies are new to you. The mercies of God, new to you every single morning. You have the living God who delights to hear from you, who loves to bless you, who longs for you just to continue to grow in his grace. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all of your sins and heals all of your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with loving kindness and his tender mercy every day, every single day, until that day when you stand there in the presence of Jesus Christ. Because there's coming a day when we're going to see the mansion in all of its beauty. Today we get tastes, today we get experiences of it, but in a sense, we're in the foyer. We're there. We're God's children. Nothing can separate us from his love. But one day, friends, we're going to experience the glory of it in a way that it's just the Bible doesn't tell us much because who can comprehend it? Who can, who can understand what it is going to be like to experience a life that we were created for? Who, who can know what it's going to be actually like to be in the presence of King Jesus, to be in the presence of our Savior and Lord, to be in the presence of God forever. And yet that's what the gospel promises. Friend, if you are not a Christian tonight, you're robbing yourself. You're committing spiritual suicide and God himself invites you to come home. God himself invites you in Jesus Christ to confess your sin. That you might be able to come to the table of the Lord. You see what we're doing here tonight is we're coming together in the house of God uh, to eat. We're sitting down as God's family around God's table where Jesus himself promises to commune with us. And, and we're not there as guests. We're invited to stay. The grace and the truth, the glory of the gospel that we celebrate tonight around this table, we take with us as God goes with us. And we have the confidence that he's for us. Let's prepare our hearts to meet him. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, thank you that Jesus Christ came for us. Thank you, O Lord Jesus, that you loved us. And thank you, Jesus, that it is your pleasure now to sit down and dine with us. Lord, this is just a foretaste, but it's, it's a command you gave to us so that we could have concrete evidence that we are invited home. And that in Jesus Christ, we have access into the holy of holies, that, that we are the friends of God. All by grace as we confess our sin and trust in Jesus. Father, you know the hearts of your people tonight. You know the, the fears, the worries. You know the guilt, the shame. Oh, God, God, I pray that tonight as we dine at the table of the king, not as guests, but as children, not as strangers, but sons and daughters, heirs of everlasting life. Father, I pray that you administer that truth through our heart. That we would leave here tonight delighting in the fact that we've been invited back home. That God is our God forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to ask the elders.